This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi everybody, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Winter 2018 Season, Episode 3, talking about Darling in the Franks, Episode 3. Just a couple of things real quick before we get started. I want to clarify a bit about my big speculation from last time. I asserted that the parasites' ignorance about sexuality was intentional, that the reason they weren't assigning any suggestive qualities to the process was because they didn't really know there was something to suggest. But I want to be clear that I'm not saying that they don't have sexuality, okay? Biology gonna biology, and whether they know anything or not, attractions and feelings are going to happen. This means that Hero's going to be a little bit uncomfortable with Zero Two's nakedness and her affections. Zorome knows he likes looking at Nana's figure. Ichigo feels a certain way about Hiro, and so on. No level of naivete would stop the very powerful reproductive biology inherent in animals. I'm not suggesting that any potential infertility in the human race would actually stop feelings of desire, okay? Normal biological attraction. Even if the kids have been messed with on some genetic level, this is not the kind of thing they would take away. In fact, if what I propose is true, the opposite would be true. Like Zero Two says, the doctor says parasites are better off being a little pervy. So, to restate, ignorance of sexuality doesn't mean absence of sexuality. Not knowing enough about it just makes it extra confusing, and Ichigo right now is a perfect case study of that concept. The second real quick thing is I am going to resume interacting with people in the comments on just the Darling and the Franks videos. I haven't done it yet because I'm still paranoid about being spoilered for the other series. In fact, I've largely shut myself completely off from the anime community. It's just that important to me. So I'm going to trust everybody to stay on the discussion of whatever episode we're actually talking about. So don't talk about the other series. Don't talk about episode two or three of Darling the Franks in the comments for episode one, because then we might be spoilering someone else. If it looks like spoilering is going to be a problem, I'll probably back off again. But for now, I'm going to start re-interacting with people in the Darling of the Franks uh, episodes only. Alright then, we have a pretty straightforward episode today, so let's get to it. So I had guessed before that Hiro had given names to other parasites besides Naomi, including himself, uh, that he was a giver of names. Well. We begin with just such a scene this time, where he is explaining that he did name himself, and evidently he named Ichigo as well. Now I can't tell if Ichigo loves being given a name here, or if she feels like it's devalued a little bit since it's just a reading of her code number. Maybe it being a code number doesn't matter, it's just the treating it as a name makes it special. I don't know, but either way, the children kind of warmed his hobby. Now I talked before about how the giving of names is a humanizing act. It's no surprise, then, that the children in their orphaned lab rat state would hunger for that kind of validation. Hiro is actually narrating a bit over this whole exchange, and talks about how they clung to one another, 
like baby birds awaiting their parents' return. And the analogy is pretty apt. The children don't have the normal family support group and so end up clinging to each other uh, all the more tightly. Now at the end of this, we see a seemingly uncertain and shy boy join the group and ask for a name of his own. If we stop the video, we can see that this is actually Mitsuru by the code on his collar. It's an interesting way to foreshadow his prominence in this episode, as this uncertain boy in no way resembles the Mitsuru that we've known thus far. Now aside from this opening flashback, all of these opening scenes are about the various members reacting to the mock battle at the end of last episode. After the credits, we see some sort of biological medical thing that is scanning Hero for defects or injuries or something. I gotta say, using green and yellow for the laser color for this kind of device is pretty unusual in sci-fi stories. I can't help but think that this is just one more example of using plant details, in this case the green and yellow colors of spring. Now it is interesting in a world-building sense that they can scan for health issues this way, but what's actually nice about it is that it goes ahead and eliminates any kind of medical or physical problem as the cause for Hiro and Ichigo's failure. It helps narrow the focus back to whatever unnamed, intangible thing is actually at the heart of the matter. Now Hiro wants to broach the matter with Ichigo, but her body language is telling him to stay back. She won't meet his eyes, and she dashes off as soon as she can. You know, I really like the camera work in this scene, focusing on her lips, focusing on her feet as they flee. They're showing us Ichigo from Hiro's perspective, where she won't look at him, and so we don't see her eyes either. And we see the lips, and we see her feet dashing out of frame, leaving Hiro alone in the shot. Really some quality cinematography. There's really great storytelling in the scene all around. The use of silence is so much better than any kind of expository dialogue would have been. And having him blush and sort of steal glances at her lips tells us that he's just as confused by the matter as she is. Nana and Hachi are also trying to make sense of the mock battle, since there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with their pilots. It's especially confusing since Hiro was able to pilot with Zero Two, and we get a few little world-building details here. They say that he was the first sample that's ever piloted with her and taken so little damage. Well, sample is an interesting way to put it, isn't it? They then go on to say that the only thing that can explain it is the special specimen. Well, this is the second reference we've had to this special specimen terminology. The show isn't ready to give us the details of this, but they want us to know that it's central, but maybe not well understood. We then switch to a scene outside the birdcage facility and have some extra bird imagery to go along with it, a duck and its young swimming along the lake. It's no accident to have this image of a parent-child relationship as the backdrop to Hiro and Goro's conversation. Two people who have never had a parent-child relationship and have largely had to make do with each other. Goro even compares Ichigo and Hiro to siblings because of how few people have codes in the teens. And let's remember that Hiro was just referring to his fellow orphans as nestlings. I think no small part of the issues that our pilots have stem from them not having a real parent figure. I think each of them has had to play a little bit of the parent role for each other. Hiro's done it with the giving of names, and Goro's kind of doing it right now, trying to be a source of advice for Hiro. We also learn from this that Goro has always been there with Ichigo and Hiro, and that all of them were assigned to Plantation 13 from the special class. And just one more tiny detail of the shared backstory here. What I find interesting about this conversation is the way Hiro has handled the mock battle. The failure with Ichigo has not put him back to where he was in episode one. I mean, he's confused, as we saw from the previous scene, 
And I don't think he and Ichigo will be the same soon, if, if ever. But his success with Zero Two has made him have a little more belief in himself again, even if it's a little bit tenuous. He also still prizes fulfilling his role as a pilot over his own life, saying that our entire purpose in life is to pilot the Franks. That's why we were born. I think this is actually at odds with the part of him that is a giver of names. A giver of names sees the value in individuality, but the piloting process and the fulfillment he gets from that comes from an external source that doesn't seem to care about individuality, that treats the children as somewhat disposable. I think this is part of the central conflict within Hero, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in the next part. Finally, then we get the rest of the Parasites' reaction to the mock battle, as they discuss the likelihood of Hero being able to become a Parasite now. Now, Zorome knows exactly how he feels about it, but I love that Mitsuru takes the opportunity to take a shot at Zorome. I said last time we'd watch to see if he stirs things up, and, uh, yep. Now, Zorome's response to Mitsuru's jab just causes more conflict between he and Miku as he attempts to shift the blame. So it seems that the mock battle has a little bit of fallout for those two as well. Now, Kokoro makes a comment here that's a little enlightening. She urges them not to fight because it'll affect your numbers. And this gives us just another clue to the connection process. Now, we saw that it could fail due to strife during the connection, but Kokoro's comment here suggests that even outside bickering could affect things once you get into the cockpit. Not to constantly link everything to sexuality, but this is pretty analogous to romantic relationships too, I think. Strife and resentment in the day-to-day -day aspects of a relationship can absolutely have an effect on intimacy. Let's see, then Miku takes another stab at Ichigo, feels she is a little bit threatened by her in the same way that Zorome is threatened by Hiro. Now Ichigo, though, despite how she's feeling, makes herself the voice of calm reason, even if she is biased towards Hiro. She hasn't let the experience with Hero and the failure affect her composure uh, whenever it is that she feels she has to be acting as the group's leader. It's clear, too, that being saved by Strelizia still matters quite a lot to her. That's not the last word on the subject, though, as Mitsuru steps in to give us a little bit of details about the past. He reiterates his rumor from before, saying that Hero was just taken along for the ride, that he wasn't really piloting, but then he says that, sure, Hero was special, even among the double digits, he was a cut above. We were all certain that he'd be our leader and show us the way, but reality had other ideas. Hero couldn't become a parasite. He's not who he used to be. Mitsuru likes a little bit of theatrics. It's actually something he did back in episode one as well. We can see that Ichigo doesn't like one bit of what he's saying, but that doesn't mean that what he's saying isn't true. Really, if it is true, that's all the more reason for Ichigo not to want to hear it. Regardless of how they feel, though, obviously something happened with Hero. He is not in the same place he was when everyone looked up to him, expected this from him, and he and the other parasites are clearly all still trying to figure out how they relate to each other. Our next brief part is only about Hero and Zero Two. After some practice with his training unit, Hero runs into Zero Two, who apparently has been waiting on him to finish. She appears to be napping, and he uses the opportunity to look a little bit closer at her horns, and she accuses him of being a pervert for staring at her. Now she's teasing, really, and she says that the doctor said parasites are better off being a little pervy. I will say that the implication that being perverted somehow helps the piloting process certainly aids our interpretation that the thing is inherently sexual. Now Zero Two is at her most human when she is around Hero, teasing him, being playful, flirting, really. 
If we had only had the scenes of her in the series where Hero is not around, she would have a totally different characterization. Anyways, we see this little exchange with the security corridor, with Hero explaining that children have restrictions on where they're allowed to go. Zero Two apparently has pretty wide access to the facilities and gets him through. Now Hero is amazed at the inner city of the plantation. I'm amazed that he's never been allowed to see it. Zero Two confirms for us that all the plantations have this design, and she doesn't really share his enthusiasm. Now this is another scene with a good use of silence as the two of them spend a lot of time looking at each other or at the city without saying anything. Hero explains his staring by saying that he's trying to think up a name for Zero Two. Now, I'd said before that there probably will come a big moment when he bestows a name on her. But for now though, she's fine as she is. Hero tries to argue the point, asking if it doesn't feel kind of lame to go by your code number. Oh, you mean like you did with Ichigo? Zero Two doesn't see the value in it though. She says that once we die, we'll only be a statistic. It won't matter what we were called. She's just not in a place right now where she's receptive to receiving something like a name. It won't surprise me if part of her character evolution in this series is getting her to the point where such a thing has value for her. The difference in where the two of them are is further accentuated when they talk about the city. She calls it a lifeless city. There are no skies or oceans here. It's isolated on a one-way street to nowhere. A dead end of life. Okay, melodramatic. But still, this is consistent with what she said before about feeling like she was going to suffocate. However, Hiro isn't as interested in her philosophizing as he is in her personal safety. I think this is reflected a bit in how they both feel about names right now. Hiro intuitively understands that names give value, while Zero Two doesn't assign value to lives at all, including her own. He's worried about her safety, and she's not. He believes in names, and she doesn't. Now, keep this difference in the way they value lives in mind for later on, when we come into a little bit of conflict about who's going to go with Zero Two to save the other parasites. Anyway, Zero Two then throws him, and us, a bit of a curveball when she asks him, want to run away with me? Now, when he doesn't immediately go for it, she withdraws and says she's kidding, but I don't believe her. I think she's not comfortable showing vulnerability, but she still wants to show her vulnerable side to him. I think this is the whole reason that she brought him to the spot. I mean, she didn't know he couldn't get through the security gate, she didn't know he'd never seen the city, and she obviously doesn't care that much about showing off the view. I think she just knew that this was a spot where they could talk, and this is the thing she wanted to talk about. I fully expect this to be a proposition that she voices again someday. The next part begins as we learn that the parasites are going to be mobilized. We also learn that Klaxosaurs are attracted by magma energy reactions and appear in their vicinity. So that's at least one hint to the type of conflict that they represent to the story. Now, Strelizia will not be mobilized for this because they can't count on her help forever, because apparently the parasites are going to be tasked with the sole defense of Plantation 13. They will be expected to face much greater threats than what they're facing today. Now, while it does make sense that they can't get in the habit of relying on Strelizia, I'm left wondering, what exactly does Strelizia normally do? Where is the rest of the unit that Zero Two belongs to? Why did she come to Plantation 13 in the first place? Anyway, before Ichigo and Goto board their Franks, Goto is asking her if she's still bothered by what happened in the mock battle. He's admonishing her to change gears, and she starts to say something, but then thinks better of it. I wonder what she was going to say, or what she was going to ask. I think it's telling for both her and Hiro 
that neither of them has wanted to talk about what happened with anyone else, and things are too awkward for the two of them to talk with each other about what happened. Goro's been in a position for either one of them to confide in, and neither of them has chosen to do so. We also have a little bit of the carryover of the tension between Miku and Zorome, as Miku makes a comment that maybe she's not as confident in her partner as she should be. Then it turns out that Ikuno can't connect. Now we saw her struggle a little bit last episode during that startup process, while Mitsuru was relatively unperturbed. He once again seems kind of aloof about the whole thing. He's almost bored with the notion that they can't connect and join the sortie. Now they're headed out to one of these drilling operations, and we learn that the thing they're extracting is magma reserves, whatever that means. Then we get an, as you know, exposition speak from Hachi. That's really a bit of a sin in writing. Characters shouldn't have a conversation about something that the two of them know, just for the benefit of the audience. The worst part about this expo speak is that it's largely unnecessary. I think the fight with Strelizia in episode one made all of this clear, even with no one talking about it or explaining it. I didn't even feel the need to comment on it at the time. If they felt they needed to do this, I wish they would at least have given us some information we don't have as well. Like why the Klaxosaurs are mechanical seeming, or at least different than the biology we expect. Or maybe why they're attracted to magma, and why that meant someone thought making weapons out of magma was a good idea. Back in the Situation Room, Nana is trying to figure out what's going on with Ikunu and Mitsuru, and asks after Ikunu's health. Apparently she has always been a little bit unstable. But doesn't it look like Ikunu might be a little bit nervous about what Mitsuru's thinking? Like she's worried about his reaction or something? Now he suggests that they might have compatibility issues, which Nana kind of waves off as normal. I don't think he's pleased with this. He, he acts indifferent, but I think we're meant to understand that he's wishing that she would split them up. So what is it in their past that has caused this tension between them? And why is it that Mitsuru wants to get rid of her? So the next part begins as we get to the actual Klaxosaur fight. It shows the thing sucking on the magma energy like a tick on a dog. We have a nicely synchronized little attack, and then Zorome kind of shows off a bit, which just angers Miku a little more. He pulls the classic brag before the fight is over trope that gives the thing an opportunity to kind of go all facehugger on Argentia. Now the Klaxosaur's attack actually seems to hurt or stress out Miku, who passes out from the stress. Do the girls actually have their senses connected to the Franks? Is the pain that the Franks feels transmitted directly to them? I don't know, but this is pretty much the culmination of the tension that has been building between Miku and Zorome from the end of the mock battle last time. And this time the consequences are much higher than just an annoyed partner. Anyway, it gets worse as more Klaxosaurs show up because, as Nana says, they've attracted several Klaxosaurs by releasing their magma energy. Oh, you mean arming the Franks with the very thing that attracts them in the first place might have consequences? I mean, I actually kind of inadvertently brought this up in episode one. We noted that the Klaxosaur that attacked the plantation did so by walking all the way around the perimeter to actually attack the garage where the Franks were housed. Now, Zero Two is unsurprised and seemingly unconcerned about how things have progressed. Now, I wonder if she's actually criticizing Nana and official policy here, or if she really just wants an excuse to pilot with her darling. I'm not actually sure we know enough about Zero Two at this point to say. Uh, it could very well be both. Now, Hachi won't budge on this because Hero is not an official stamen. Should we conclude that Hachi is simply a stickler for detail? That breaking protocol is actually worse to him than losing some of the parasites? 
I mean, I've pointed out before that there is a general sense that the children are disposable. Not being an official parasite means Hero can't ride to their rescue. How damaging now is that failure in the mock battle? Now Zero Two criticizes Hachi, saying this is no time to stick to the rules. And then she goes on to add that this plantation squad is about to be wiped out again. The key word here being again. How much does Zero Two know about all the operations and the plantations and everything that's going on with the connection process? Just like she has wider access than them, she clearly has much wider knowledge about things than Hero and the other parasites do. Now with all that knowledge and her competence comes a little bit of confidence, as Zero Two comes on really strong, getting right up in Nana's face, demanding, just send me out already, let me ride with my darling. Now to Nana's credit, she isn't cowed at all. And then Mitsuru sees his opportunity. Maybe he even had designs on this from the beginning and has been intentionally discrediting Hiro and distancing himself from Ikuno, maybe even sabotaging their partnership. Or maybe he's just an opportunist. Either way, he puts Zero Two in a bit of a bind. Maybe she does want to save the other parasites, despite how unconcerned she seems. More likely is that she just wants an excuse to pilot with Hero, as the only emotion she really shows during this exchange is when she's demanding to be let ride with her darling. Once she's put the offer out there though, she can't really take it back once Mitsuru steps forward. It would be a pretty bad look to refuse to go save the parasites, when the whole reason she's putting herself out there is saying that she wants to save the parasites. I think she ultimately misjudges Hiro on this. She wants to ride with him probably more than she wants to save the parasites, but he wants to save the parasites more than anything else, regardless of how it has to happen. Now Nana does attempt to warn Mitsuru off of this, but he, just like Zorome, are under the assumption that they are better pilots than Hiro. So if he can do X, they can also do X, but better. Also, though we probably suspected it already, it's nice to have Nana confirm for us that Strelizia is different as far as Franks go. The connection process is different. Now, when Nana can't warn Mitsuru off, Zero Two attempts to use her sort of trump card status to make another play for Hiro. But Hiro cares more about saving his friends. You can tell that the piloting process means something very different to each of them. Now, since Zero Two knows way more about what's going on, I think we should pay attention to how she's somewhat disbelieving that he would let someone else go in his place. Now that is not the expression of a happy girl. Man to man, Hero, let me give you some advice. If you ever say something that makes a girl give you that look, you done goofed. Now she probably does feel betrayed here, but the way she relents makes me wonder if she doesn't realize that each of them has a different understanding of the process. After all, at the end of the scene, when she and Mitsuru do walk off together, Hiro will think to himself that there may have been a part of me that hoped she would refuse. It's possible that Zero Two already senses that in him, and he's just not to a point where he's ready to fight for it. I gotta say, this is a really nice bit of complexity for his character. He's not some perfect, self-sacrificing guy with no thought for himself. He does make the decision to ask her to go, but secretly, he wishes that she'd insisted that it be with him anyway. Secretly, he wants to be the special one. Now Mitsuru doesn't miss this at all, and says, don't come crying to me when you regret the goody two-shoes act later. He obviously has designs on upgrading to a better partner, as he sees it, just like Zorame did. I think maybe he has some insecurity about his position, just like Zorome. His temperament just means he goes about it in a very different way, 
than the brash and aggressive way that Zotome does. Something Yukuno said last time kind of comes back to me now, where she says, what's the point of competing among ourselves? Well, it's clear that Mitsuru does not feel the same way. Maybe the two of them are incompatible in a lot of ways. Our last part begins as Miku returns to consciousness. Now Zorame's usual devil-may-care attitude is completely absent here. He's genuinely relieved to see that Miku's okay, surprising even to her. Once they reconnect, he proclaims to the group, Miku came back to life, which of course embarrasses her since she wasn't dead at all, Zorame, you dummy. But this little exchange redeems Zorame a bit, I think. He didn't say, hey, we're back in the fight, or it'll take more than that to knock us out, turning it into a type of boast. Instead, it's only about Miku being okay. He was legitimately beside himself for a while there. After his kind of exaggerated antagonism of Hero so far, seeing that he can abandon all that bluster when the chips are really down and it looks like his partner's in trouble really brings him back into the realm of being a sympathetic character. Anyway, they get news that Strelizia is on the way to help them. They just need to hold the door until she gets there. This should be great news. And then Ichigo wonders who's piloting Strelizia. Did Hiro, who she just failed with, turn right around and succeed again with Zero Two? Did he have a meaningful and exciting kiss with her again, in contrast to the one that she and he just shared? Now, it's way too early to assume that Hiro and Zero Two are a thing, or even that Ichigo completely understands what she's feeling. But there are few pains like watching someone you love appear to love someone else. Deaths and other losses are awful in their own right, but a tragic event is a wound you receive once. Time can immediately begin the healing process. Unrequited love, though, is like being wounded again every day. That's it's awful. And our normally in control Ichigo is not immune. And evidently, that kind of emotional turmoil is enough to disrupt the connection. And Goro kind of immediately loses control of the Franks. Now this loss of control leads directly to them not being able to brace the door anymore. And the Klaxosaurs burst in and pursue them. This leads to them running to the central chamber where they meet another host of Klaxosaurs, including some huge ones. My immediate question is, how bad and spotty is their intel if they thought they were going after just this one little blue tick thing when actually there were this many in the area? If they were overmatched even before that second wave or the big one, and they know that the use of their energy weapons uh, will bring more Klaxosaurs, why was this mission given the green light in the first place? Another aside here, but these Klaxosaurs look an awful lot like uh, fruit or a seed bulb that has just begun to sprout. The part coming off the top looks exactly like a little two-leaved shoot emerging from a large seed or bulb. I mean, I know we have plant imagery and terminology all over the place, but what does it mean to have the Klaxosaurs share in that pattern as well? Anyway, with their doom looming over them, we dive into Ichigo's thoughts again. At first, they kind of sound like they're coming from the future, and some tragedy is actually about to befall. But it's just that she thinks they really are doomed, and she's regretting her momentary lapse, and she's blaming herself for failing as a leader. Now, though we were capable of making the link between her distraction and failure on our own, hearing that she is self-aware about this at least helps us understand about the way her character is evolving through this whole crisis. Maybe she'll figure out what it is she feels, uh, but there is a reason I added Ichigo Fallout as a conflict last time. 
having the leader plagued with these kind of angst and feelings uh, was always going to have wider ramifications. Anyway, one crisis gives way to another. Strelizia comes in, starts laying waste to all the Klaxosaurs, and the rest of them learn that it's Mitsuru piloting, not Hiro. Man, how silly does Ichigo feel right now? Mitsuru is amazed at the difference at piloting with Zero Two, and proclaims that he knew he wasn't the problem. Then he says that I'm just as good as Hiro, which again, like Zorome, suggests that there are some real feelings of inadequacy when it comes to Hiro on the part of some of our parasites. I continue to be curious about the former state of things before Hiro's fall from grace, and why that causes these two to feel so threatened by him and the success he's had with Zero Two. Now, just like Zorome, Mitsuru can't help but float the idea of upgrading partners, as he sees it. And this whole scene is by far the most emotion that Mitsuru has shown in the series. He even seems a bit like a frenzied psychopath compared to the withdrawn and calculating persona that we've seen to this point. I'd already pointed out that he likes to stir things up, and I kind of assumed that his ambition would manifest as deviousness compared to the aggressive way that Zoromaze does. But feeling the power of Strelizia apparently makes his true colors shine through. And in the heat of the moment, he can't help but taunt Hero about it. But then, well, crapping on Hero is probably already a bad idea, but then propositioning Zero Two in the middle of their fight, well, I don't know if this is entirely why Zero Two does what she does next, but I can't help but feel like it influences her. She says ominously, I guess I can try going all out for a bit then. I'm sure partially she just wants to put him back in his place, but man, the look on Strelizia's face. Wide-eyed, manic grin, covered in Klaxosaur blood? Mitsuru might have bitten off more crazy than he can chew. Now Mitsuru hasn't made himself very sympathetic so far, so there's a little bit of a satisfaction on the part of the audience to watch his dawning realization that maybe he's not as in control of the situation as he thinks he is. Maybe he doesn't understand as much as he thinks. Nana and Hachi, however, perfectly understand what's going on, and they immediately dispatch someone to go retrieve Strelizia, knowing that it's not going to be returning under its own power. Now up top, while the rest of them reflect on being saved by Strelizia, we have another important moment between Zorome and Miku. Miku is hunched down, shaken up I believe, and Zorome is looking at her, really kind of ignoring the details of what everyone else is talking about. Then Zorome takes the initiative to apologize to Miku and accept the blame for their predicament. But she says, don't be stupid, it doesn't matter whose fault it is, we're partners, right? Maybe Zorome isn't used to that level of being accepted, but I think it hits him in the feels a little bit. Zorome gets a moment to be endeared to us again, just like when he was excited about her coming back to life. And Miku gets to display that she's not petty and holding a grudge, and that she really values their partnership. It's a stark contrast to the beginning of the episode where they were fighting about whose blame it was and Zorome acted like he couldn't care less and Miku clearly had no faith in his ability in the middle of things. Despite their antics so far and their confrontational tendencies, these two might actually be well matched. Against this, we once again have Goro questioning Ichigo. He has noticed a few times that she's been acting out of sorts. He is really in tune to her. And she's not willing to talk about the real reason with him, and, and maybe with anybody, and is content to silently reprimand herself. Listen, one of you jokers needs to open up to go bro at some point. You'll feel much better, I promise. Now, Strelizia and its pilots are retrieved, and everyone can tell immediately that something's wrong. 
Zero Two once again does this thing where she emerges from the cockpit and first kind of stares out of the horizon instead of looking around. When she does though, and she notices Hero, her demeanor changes, and she's smiling and waving like there's nothing wrong between us. It doesn't seem like she's sulking about him not going with her at all, so maybe they are fine. Hero notes this, and he says that the hand she held out and the smile she offered to me alone came at a price. He has at least noticed that her attitude, her whole friendliness, seems only to be directed at him. Now the price, in this case, is the fact that Mitsuru has taken some damage. Now this is kind of the least surprising development here, but it's interesting to note how Zero Two is reacting to it. She simply says that, yeah, this guy really isn't cut out to be my darling. My darling is you and you alone. Now considering that everything seemed to be going fine in the fight with Mitsuru before he suggested being her partner, it's hard to believe that she doesn't have some control over how much damage her partner takes. Then Hiro has kind of a curious thought. He says, and I thought back to what she said before, I can get you out of here. Well, if there's any doubt that Zero Two will bring that subject up again, I think his thoughts here pretty much cement it. More curious though is, why is that his reaction to Mitsuru being banged up? Or to her declaring that he is her darling and he alone? Is Hiro horrified at what happened, or is he intrigued that it didn't happen to him? I mean, he got into the cockpit with her after seeing what happened to her first partner, but largely because he believed that if he can't pilot, he has no place to belong. Now though, he's thinking about her offer to run away, and isn't that the opposite of belonging? Is he thinking that he actually has no chance of belonging, since he can only pilot with her, and yet she has no emphasis on belonging herself? Does this repel him from wanting to pilot with her, or does it make him reevaluate how much he actually wants to belong? As he says in the opening, they believed that great blue skies awaited us outside. He wants to belong and he wants to fly free. And up until now, those have been the same goal because in order to get one, he has to do the other. But now with Zero Two's offer, there might actually be a way to fly free by expressly giving up on a desire to belong. And I don't know, I don't know yet. Even being able to hear Hero's thoughts he is complicated and conflicted enough of a character that I can't guess exactly what his intent is. He himself may not yet know. Now, conflicted characters are great for a story, especially when the narrative will affect their inner turmoil and their inner turmoil will affect the narrative. In Hero's case, we may have a single goal splitting into multiple goals that may one day be at odds with each other. In fact, let's just go ahead and talk about goals altogether. So we have a new goal. We will separate Hero's goal of wanting a place to belong into that goal and a new goal of wanting to fly free. He dreams of leaving the restrictions of the nest and going to fly free. And with the arrival of Zero Two and their relationship, suddenly he has a different path to that than he did previously. He will pursue both goals for now, I imagine, but there may come a day when he has to choose. We'll also add a new goal for Zero Two who similarly wants to fly free. Now we don't know everything about her yet, she's still kind of mysterious, but when she asks Hiro if he wants to run away with her, like I said, I don't think she's joking. To what end, I don't know, but her comments about the city, the way she's always kind of looking at the horizon, she laments there being no ocean, all this suggests that she wants a different life in a different place than she's experiencing right now. She chafes under the system, and her goal may not be any more formed than that she wants to be out of it, but it has a nice parallel to Hero's desire to fly free, so we're gonna call it the same thing. 
We'll be able to fill in more details about this goal uh, as we go along, as we learn more about her. Finally, we're just gonna modify a goal we added last time about Zotome wanting to be the best. Now this might be premature, but when we added this goal, I pointed out that this is probably a higher goal to him than his loyalty to Miku, based on the way he acted in that mock battle. After this episode, and showing the evolution of their partnership over it, I think now, yeah, he still wants to be the best, but I don't think he'll do that at the expense of Miku anymore. I think now his partnership to her is valuable enough that that goal doesn't transcend it. Luckily for him, Miku seems pretty ambitious in her own right. He's probably fine. On to our conflicts. Our Klaxosaur threat, what appeared to be the big series-wide conflict, gets at least a little more detail now. Now we know that they are attracted to magma reserves and magma energy reactions and weapons, we at least have a better sense of what the nature of this threat is. I'm pretty sure this isn't the whole story with Klaxosaurus, but for now at least it's something. We have the conflict of Zero Two devouring partners finally actually affect the story. Like I mentioned, it's hard to believe that she doesn't have some measure of control over how much damage their partner takes, but there's still a lot about this we don't understand. For now, it's enough to know that there is a price to be paid for Strelesia's help. The Ichigo Fallout conflict that we added last time affected the story immediately. Now, it didn't actually lead to disaster, but it very nearly did, and she has no illusions about that that's what's happened. So I think there's probably more to come on this front. Finally, we will add a new conflict, which is the Ikuno-Mitsuru partnership and its problems. Mitsuru is damaged, and we don't know how badly, and I suspect Ikuno has a little bit of emotional damage here as well, being rejected out of hand the way she was. I'm just going to include Mitsuru's physical state in this conflict, because it actually is a result of their own partnership coming to a head and not working. For the moment, as partners, they are a complete non-starter, so let's keep an eye on this to see when, or even if, that will be resolved. Next up, we'll talk about some of our thematic elements and patterns we've noticed. First, we'll talk about structure mirroring that I mentioned last time. So far in the series, every single episode has ended with a Franks being piloted, and something about it is unusual enough to have repercussions to the rest of the story. Every episode has also begun with some scene, including the characters who will either be the main focus of the episode, or will be piloting in the Franks at the end, or both. And every episode's final Franks piloting has been an echo of the type of character struggles or where a character is at that point in the story. Episode 1 had the alone and lonesome Hiro and Zero Two find each other and each discover a little something to keep them going when they get to pilot together. Episode 2 had Ichigo and Hiro's paths come to a head, where how far they have diverged from whatever they used to be finally results in them having a failure and what will probably be a complete upheaval in their relationship. Finally, this episode had Mitsuru and Hiro, two people who are very different from the type of characters we see in the beginning, both be in a position to save their friends by piloting with Zero Two. Their motivations are different, and how Zero Two feels about them is different, and the two piloting results are different. This constant repetition in the episode's structure really helps emphasize how important the Frank's connection piloting process is to the characters involved, and what it tells us about where they are in the story. There is a few more instances of birds and flight imagery in the scene. Let's talk a little more about that opening bit, though, where Hiro is talking about the nestlings having a dream of soaring the skies, but for the moment cling to each other in their dark and cramped nest, waiting for parents that will never come. Now, the caged bird metaphor has been laid on pretty thick from the beginning, but it's worth noting that it has different permutations. 
This time we're specifically asked to imagine the parasites as their younger years as nestlings that have not yet gained the ability to fly. But they do dream of it. They are not aiming to stay in the nest forever. Now nestlings don't actually need a cage to contain them because they're not capable of flying in the first place. Since our parasites in the present are likened to cage birds, are we to infer that they now have the ability to fly free? That it's no longer their nature that holds them back, but some artificial barrier? There's a little bit of a return of our children as disposable, or, or lives as disposable thematic pattern. We have two examples of this in this episode, and I actually kind of pointed them out as they happened. The first is when Zero Two dismisses the idea of needing a name, saying that once we die, we'll only be a statistic, it won't matter what we were called. Her death, and the death of any parasite, is inevitable. They're commodities. No need to waste time on a name. The second example of this is in the crisis with the Klaxosaurs, where Nana and Hachi are not willing to bend the rules even if it means saving the parasites' lives. Zero Two's comments about this happening again seems to imply that having a whole squad of parasites wiped out is not that unusual. Maybe they really are just statistics. It's ironic that the three people in conflict in this scene actually all kind of have that same viewpoint about lives being disposable. Uh, we're going to go ahead and make Power of Names its own theme. I talked already about Hero as a namer and how that makes him kind of a humanizing force. I actually originally talked about it in episode one during talking about the children as disposable theme. Now since this episode opened with Hiro dispensing names and showed Mitsuru asking for a name and then Zero Two and Hiro later have a conversation about names, well, I think it's safe to say that the creators believe that the names and giving of names is important as well. I wish we knew at this point who it was that named the Franks that gave them their names. Either way, I think Power of Names is going to be a theme that lives kind of in opposition to lives being disposable, children being disposable. Finally, I want to talk just a little bit more about dividing connection from compatibility as themes. I think at least that to some degree, one can be had without the other. If we equate this to sexual symbolism, we can suggest that this is, for example, the difference between sleeping with the love of your life or sleeping with a prostitute, or a drunken one-night stand. You can say in all those cases that, yes, sex happened, but each is a qualitatively different experience. Likewise, think about the connections and the piloting between Hiro and Zero Two, between Hiro and Ichigo, Ichigo and Godro, and then Zero Two and Mitsuru this time. Technically, all four of those were connections, but I think we can agree that the experiences are not interchangeable. The efficacy was different, the results were different. Connection in this universe is not some binary concept. It is related in some way to some measure of compatibility. But it seems to go beyond just two meshing personalities. Zero Two and Hero are apparently very compatible, and yet they do have different personalities. Yes, they are both outsiders, but they have a different orientation to others, they seem to have a different value structure in place, they're definitely not perfectly mirrors of each other. Now Zero Two could connect with Mitsuru, but would we say that they are compatible? Maybe the lack of compatibility is where the damage comes from. Goro and Ichigo are apparently a model of compatibility, and there is a certain adherence to authority and decorum and taking things seriously that the two of them do have in common but their personalities have some real contrast. 
Goto is pretty passive when it comes to anything besides piloting. Ichigo, on the other hand, can be very passionate, very confrontational when it's something she cares about. Now, she and Hiro weren't compatible enough, and it's implied to be because of some sort of attraction compatibility between Zero Two and Hiro. And yet, she and Goto are compatible while she's having feelings towards Hiro. So what does all that mean as far as where the line between compatibility and ability to connect mean? I don't know. I said last time we tried to divide them out, but they are somewhat linked, but they are not interchangeable. It may be that we simply need to understand more about what's going on in the cockpit to really understand how these two might deviate from each other and how they might intersect. Now to our last two sections about the future of the series, what to watch for and speculation. And what to watch for, we've added to our list from last time, as well as taking some things off that we got answered in episode two. This time we got very little answered. The only thing I said to watch out for came up as we saw Mitsuru's behavior. I mean, it looks like, yes, he's not afraid to ruffle some feathers, but it also appears to be attached to his ambition. He's not doing it just for his own amusement. I mean, he probably is amused also, but it's not just that. So then let's add some more things to this list. A lot of these are things I asked over the course of the episode already. What happened to the children that disappeared from Garden? It was hinted at in episode one, and it came up again when the parasites were discussing Hero's fate, but it is apparently a mystery to our characters, so we will be watching for some resolution to that. Probably unpleasant. We have a bunch of questions related specifically to Zero Two. First is, what is it that's different about her connection process? You know, we have yet to see her piloting from inside the cockpit. Even in this episode, all the scenes inside are tight on Mitsuru's face. You don't get to see her at all. Relatedly, we should watch to see if she does have some control over the type of damage or how much damage her partner may take. Of course, the question is, why is she even there in the first place to cause them damage? Why did she come to Plantation 13? Where is the rest of her unit? What is it that Starlesia is usually doing when it's not hanging around Plantation 13. I mean, I would have assumed based on that first episode that whatever she is here is related to whatever it is that Dr. Franks is up to, but he hasn't shown back up in the series since then either. So I don't know what's going on. Then last thing we'll add related to our major conflict here is why do Mitsuru and Ikunu have this falling out? What was it that caused this past tension? Why does Mitsuru want to be rid of Ikuna? Now I'm guessing that we will probably learn this pretty soon which leads us to speculation. So, I think we're gonna find out about that pretty soon. I speculate that Mitsuru won't be dead, that he'll simply be put out of commission. If Naomi had died back in episode one, then I would have been a little bit more worried about Mitsuru. Right now, I think he's just going to join the growing infirmary that includes Naomi and Zero Two's original partner. Related to him, I think this opening where we see the past and we see him asking Hiro for a name means that we're gonna be diving into his backstory sooner rather than later. We want to understand how he got from that point as a character to this point, because they seem like two very different people. Now, if we don't actually learn about Mitsuru soon, next episode or two, then it's probably because we're learning about Ikuno instead, and that it will be through her that we learn about their history and what brought them to this point. Related to that, if that guess is right, I think Hiro and Ikuno will be matched up as partners next. I'm taking a kind of a risk on this one, but after Mitsuru took all that damage, I don't think they're gonna be very willing to let Hiro get in the cockpit with Zero Two again. Ikuno will just be idle as long as Mitsuru is MIA, 
So there is some logic in putting the two of them together, uh, especially since both of them have had connection problems recently. Maybe like a remedial connection class or something. If we do get to see more of Ikuno's backstory right now, it would make sense for these two events to sort of coincide. And I could then see this putting a little additional pressure on Hero and Zero Two's relationship, especially after the fallout from this episode. Now, I don't think that fallout will be permanent, and I'm going to speculate that we'll eventually learn Hero's backstory, or at least how he and Naomi came to fail, because he's going to relate that story to Zero Two. Not sure when that'll happen, but at some point she's going to ask him about why he is the way he is, and that seems like a good way for us to uncover that information as well. Before that happens though, I speculate that Hiro is going to confront Zero Two about the damage that she has caused to Mitsuru, or just the damage that she causes to her partners in general. I think he's probably able to ignore that threat as long as it's only aimed at him, but when his friends start to take damage, I think he won't be able to be silent about it anymore. That's just kind of the read I get on Hiro. I think relatedly, the parasites are going to turn on Zero Two in the short term. Zorome and Mitsuru knew the rumors, but were able to ignore them as long as they were still rumors. They still tried to pilot with her. Now that Zero Two has actually drawn blood in their ranks, I expect them to all be a little cool towards her, maybe outright hostile. Um, I am also going to speculate that Zero Two will eventually get to see an ocean. Or, if she doesn't make it to the end of the series, her last thoughts will be some regret about not getting to see an ocean, or something like that. She was wanting to swim in an ocean, remember the very first scenes of the series, and then she brings it up again when she's with Hiro and talking about the city. Which reminds me, for the final speculation we're going to add, Zero Two will ask Hiro to run away with her again. Now I can't say how he's going to react, because it will depend on where we are in the story at that point but it's definitely, definitely coming back into the story. Now, those are all additions to speculation. We do have some things that we've talked about in the past before that came true. I mentioned that we would probably see some backstory between Ichigo and Hiro in their shared childhood, and that was, in fact, the very first scene of this episode. It wasn't quite as deep a dive into it as I'd hoped, but it did give us the bonus of showing him as the giver of names, which was actually more important, I think. It doesn't tell us as much about Ichigo as I would have wanted, but it tells us a little more about Hiro and the way everyone used to look up to him. Now, I hadn't put it on the list before, but I guessed way back in episode one that Hiro would eventually bestow a name upon Zero Two. Now, while that hasn't actually happened, the fact that he's already thinking about it says that, yes, this is in play, this is a solid speculation, practically guarantee he's going to do this at some point. All right, that is it for today's episode. Next time, we'll get to see how our parasites deal with the very first casualty in their midst. I'll see you then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.